Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, today we start our Christmas at Covenant series, which is uh, every December we launch into Christmas full bore and we decide to take a different angle on the Christmas story. And so for me, every year Christmas sort of feels the, the same. Uh, it's the great joke among uh, preachers, pastors is that um, while Christmas and Easter is when most people come to church, it's when pastors are least inspired because you're kind of constrained. You have to tell the Christmas story or you have to preach Jesus resurrected, which sounds like it, which would be a lot of fun. But after 15 years of doing it, you go, how do I take another look at baby, manger, star, magi? How do I do it? Well, this year, uh, thanks to the good thing that is 2020, we have all kinds of new ways to look at life. Um, I don't know about you, but 2020 has been, uh, for me personally, leadership, all these things, has been got to be one of the toughest years uh, we've been through. Um, it's unlike anything we've experienced, so whether it's been great for you or, or otherwise, it's still completely unique quarantines and shutdowns and election and unrest and strife and division. And now this, we have a holiday to navigate in the midst of it all, which on the surface is like, well, you just kind of do what you do, right? And the reality is the holiday presents uh, innumerable more choices that you've probably been in a rhythm of in past years. And now you have to rethink them just like you rethought work and you rethought school and you had to rethink how do I shake hands with somebody at church? So you have to give them like the evangelical elbow or the faith fist or whatever you do. Now you got to do it with the holidays, we got asked yesterday, we had some friends, and, and they said, what are you guys doing for Christmas? My family, every other year, we travel right after Christmas, and we go back to Texas to visit family. On the intervening years, we go on Thanksgiving, and so it's kind of our way to two birds with well, two stones, but whatever. And they said, well, what are you going to do? Isn't this your year for Christmas? And we said, yeah, we're going to, we got plane tickets. We bought them in August, and I think we're going to go. And, and she said to us, she says, well, what about, like, aren't you afraid of giving it to your parents or your grandparents or your sick ain't or aren't you afraid of having it not knowing it and taking it and then like you know so you go through all these terrible scenarios of like I think we killed our whole family by taking them presents and that's not what I want to think through are we risking my family's health by traveling at Christmas should I wear a mask should I avoid hugs should I just live in the basement until 2025 and just wait for the whole thing to be over like what what's the idea and so Christmas in this holiday season presents a hundred new challenges and ways to think about things that used to be kind of muscle memory. We just do the thing. You go to grandma's house, you eat the ham, you open the present, you say thank you for the socks, and you move on. And, and this year it's a whole new thing. It sounds silly on the surface, but the, the reality is it starts to feel like a little bit crushing to us because there's no consensus on what you're supposed to do. There's no clarity. Every, for a thousand people, there's a thousand different nuanced opinions about what you should do this year and how you should approach everything. So it's no wonder that when I ask people around town, when I ask our, our folks, what's the prevailing sentiment? How do you feel this year as we come up upon Christmas? The prevailing statement from almost everyone I talk to is some form of, I am tired. I'm just tired. I'm over it. I'm weary. I'm done. Can we move on? Can it be 2023 or 28? Jesus, are you coming? Today would be nice. Like, this is what people tell me. I'm just tired. So just for my for my, my giggles here. Online, you can do this too. You uh, will use your fingers and type. In the room, you're going to use your fingers this way, like, like this. Um, one being, I've never had more energy, felt more alive, and I couldn't love 2020 more, and I hope it never ends. And five being, can it just be 
like May already. I'll give up the next six months if we can just fast forward. I'm exhausted and I'm sick of it and I'm done. One or five, somewhere in the middle. Where are you? Just by show of hands, where are you at? Someone just showed me a 10. Okay, I'm, that's impressive. I'm a four. I've been, I've been three and a day or two of five in there. Someone is a 10. We got counseling available after the service. Here's what's true. As I look around, we got a couple, couple people that have figured some life out. There's some twos and threes out there. We're weary. Collectively, this is the time of year where you're kind of decelerating anyway because you're finally taking a, a deep breath. But we are collectively a weary people. We are suffering from decision, decision fatigue and pandemic fatigue and mask fatigue and Zoom fatigue. And the holidays are already difficult for a lot of people because they're full of family issues and old wounds reopened. You have loneliness that becomes acute in this season, unlike any other. And oh, by the way, don't forget, there's the normal financial stress of the holiday season, but it's actually even heavier this year. And so what we really need is rest. We are a weary people in need of real rest. One of my favorite Christmas songs is Oh Holy Night. It gets me every time when it swells up and the fall on your knees and all that. I just uh, ask my girls, I'm a crier at home. Just, you put that on a commercial full jewelry and if they, they hit it just right, I'm just weeping as the jewelry commercial comes. I don't care. It just it gets me every time. This year, more than ever, I think it, it speaks to us. We are a weary world in desperate need of rejoicing. We are a people that are more ready for a thrill of hope because we feel more hopeless than we've ever felt. We are waiting for dawn to break, and we need true rest. And what I want to tell you today, and I will tell you again later, but we'll start with it just to be sure we don't miss it, is that in a weary world, only Jesus offers true rest. And there's a thousand ways that the world is going to offer you rest and a break and a deep breath, and in a weary world, the only place to find true rest is in Jesus. So let's read from the book of Hebrews today. We're going to kind of jump in and out of Hebrews chapter 4, kind of read it and talk about it, go back and forth. It says this, the, the author says, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So you ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it, for this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. So let me give you some context. Book of Hebrews, uh, this letter written to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew believers in Jesus. These are Christians who have come out of kind of formal religious Judaism and they are now adopting Jesus as Lord and Savior and following him. Probably written in 63 or 64 AD, so a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what you, you find if you read the book of Hebrews this is a weary people. It's an urban people comparatively to the people Jesus is ministering to. As we've walked with Jesus through these Samaritan towns and in Capernaum and these places, we're talking villages of 150 to 500. The, the Hebrew people that are being written to here are relatively urban by comparison. Fast-paced, they're facing persecution and trouble. They are, frankly, if you read what the author is trying to convince them not to do, they're talking about giving up about giving faith back and saying, look, I'd I just want to go back to the religion, the Judaism I knew, because this is, this is exhausting. Of all the biblical people, we might be more like the Hebrews than any other. If you want to read a book that speaks to you, maybe in this season we need to be reading the book of Hebrews. They are holding a faith like ours that faces uh, cultural headwinds. They are weary from the pace of life, weary from the doubts that begin to creep in. And more than we want to admit, we consider in practical ways, maybe not in in our hearts, deepest part of our heart, but in practical ways, we sort of start giving up on Jesus. 
sort of say, yeah, I'll follow, but gosh, this, this is a lot of work. And so we end up slipping back into religion. We end up slipping into what's the routine and what's the ritual I need to do and what's the box I need to check because this, this personal relationship following of Jesus thing, like I got enough to do, people start thinking. And we don't think it first. We sort of realize we're thinking it once we look at our days and we look at our actions and we go, you know what? If I was in a relationship with somebody and I hadn't talked to him in a week or two, that might be a problem. So we say a prayer before a meal and we go to church on Easter. But faith, I got bills to pay, I got stuff to do, pandemics everywhere. And faith is that thing that you can kind of give up on because the bill doesn't come due, or so we think. I think I have a great sympathy for people in this season. I think about it this way. You were not designed to carry the weight you're currently carrying. You were not designed, uh, and God is not surprised by technology, but technology has made this infinitely worse for us. You are not designed to carry the weight of the terror and the trauma and the tragedy of seven and a half billion people. And yet in your pocket, in your purse, you can pull out a device that gives you access to every terrible story the world has. You have them all. You can tell me what the current death rate is from a global disease in your county or your state or your nation right now. These are not percentages you're supposed to have in your soul. These are not things you're supposed to carry. The, the story on Facebook of this tragic thing that happened to this friend of a friend of a friend who reposted it into your timeline, you're not supposed to know about that. I'm not saying that it's not good to be sympathetic. It's not good to pray for them. Those are all good things. But when God designed us to be at a communal people, you look through the course of, of human history until very recently, you maybe knew two or 300 people and you interacted with two or 300 people and you knew the stories of two or 300 people and you would never know about that cousin's babysitter in St. Louis, Missouri, whose child had this tragic, you would never know about it. And now you carry it with you. Now it sits on your soul and it's a weight that you got to deal with because you saw the sad story on, on Instagram because you turned on Fox News or CNN and they told you you should be really upset about this new thing that's happening by this person that you do or don't like. And it's one thing after another and it just sort of weighs us down. I would say this, breaking news is breaking you, plainly. You were not designed for breaking news. You were not designed to be on a hairpin alert for what the next bad thing is happening in the world. And as a result, we find ourselves beyond weary. We watch America's Funniest Videos in our house. I, I like really wry, dry British humor. So a good wit, like, you know, a little witty comment, I'm, I'm, I get, that gets me. The rest of my family loves physical comedy. Like if I fell off the stage right now and broke my leg, you would all gasp and my family would be doubled over laughing. They would just think that's the greatest thing that ever happened. So America's Funniest Video becomes the thing that my family loves to watch. So once a week or so, you know, we'll eat our dinner and then we'll have our dessert and we'll go sit and watch this. And, and it's just people slipping on ice and hurting themselves and crashing their cars into the fence. And, and they're just, they love it. Every single week, I, I don't know how they do this. Every single week, I don't know how we haven't learned there is somebody on that show putting Mentos into a bottle of Diet Coke and it explodes all over their house every week. And every week since like the pandemic started, I see that and I go, gosh, that is our soul. It's our soul. These geniuses, if you do this at home, if it's one of your favorite things, you are a genius. But the geniuses, sarcastically, that are doing it online and putting it on AFV so people can see them ruin their houses and get hit in the face with a corn syrup explosion. Like what? I don't get it. And we just keep jamming Mentos into the Coke bottles and wondering, like, I wonder if it's going to explode again. And here we go. And we're, we're, 
I don't know, sometimes we think we're really sophisticated people, and that reminds me that human beings are really pretty simple because for like 50 years now, we're just jamming Mentos and Coke and laughing. Um, I have a point. The modern way we consume the world's tragedy is Mentos in Coke. You are taking every last bit of breaking news and this tragedy and this news article and my father sent me this forward and somebody texted me this thing and one thing after another, we just jam those things in the Coke bottle and then we're like shocked that our souls are just spewed all over the room and all feeling discombobulated and ruined and we're like, gosh, I don't know how this happened. And so we wake up the next day and instead of doing what God has asked us to do, we open our phones, we start scrolling through the thing again. You just open up the Coke bottle and start jamming Mentos in and you wonder, why do I feel like I'm just done? Maybe we know what's coming and we have to change the way we see the world. Anybody know what the third commandment is? There's 10 commandments. Pop quiz, Bible study. Third commandment. Keep the Sabbath holy. There's 10. Third, keep the Sabbath holy. This is interesting to me. Really, the the Sabbath is about rest and remembrance. It's about resting in God and remembering God. We are the least rested people in history, soul-wise. Our souls are at least at rest of anybody in history. This is uh, kind of of got wide, wide approval from all sorts of sociologists, psychologists, ministers. They all just look and go, no, we're the most frenetic, anxious, least restful people in history. Ironically, we have the most leisure time of anybody in history as well. We got robots doing the dishes and, and you know, you t- tell Alexa what you want it to do. And, all the, and so we have more technology doing more stuff for us. So we have less to do. And yet, we are the most anxious and least rested. And so there's a weird paradox here. We live in a society that encourages overwork and overconsumption. And the third commandment says, rest and remember, rest and remember. This is important for your soul to rest and remember And I read a commentator this week who said, look, all these commandments, look, the first one kind of stands above the rest, like hold God above all other gods, don't have other gods before me. And then out of there, the rest tumble. And this one commentator said that there's no delineation of importance, that there's some denominations or people that would say, well, this one's a big deal, but this one's kind of not that big a deal. And and there's this sense that this commentator writes, and I was just taken by this. It, It resonated with me, and maybe it will with you, maybe not. He said, if you look at the Ten Commandments after that first one, this is what it means to be a human and flourishing. If you can avoid, you know, follow these commandments and avoid the bad, like like you might find flourishing in there. This is pre-Jesus. And he says, they they make no difference between the third or the sixth or the eighth. And so overwork, restlessness, this overworked, overburdened, I got to go and learn more stuff, this jamming Mentos into the Coke bottle of life, that behavior of ours, he would say is no different than adultery or stealing or murder in the sense that it absolutely robs us of a flourishing designed for us in our humanity. That it is a soul-sapping, soul-stealing kind of life we live if we refuse to rest and remember. And I said, man, that's heavy, but it it feels right. Back to Hebrews, verse 6. God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So now if Joshua, and Joshua led the Jewish people into the promised land, 
If Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest, if that was all that needed to happen was the Jewish people enter the promised land, then God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So they're doing some math here and going, look, that was rest, but there's a bigger rest. There's capital R rest waiting on the horizon. So is there, there is a special rest waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. We're going to come back to that. So he's writing to the Jewish people, these, these Christians who are Hebrews, and they have this memory of the sort of rest that their people have entered into when they entered the promised land, the land of milk and honey. And the author is saying, there's a bigger rest here. David wrote about it. Jesus promised it. So how do we find rest for our weary souls? Verse 11, let us then do our best to enter that rest. If we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, what do I do with that? Here's what you do with it. Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He faced all of the same testings we do, and yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, for there we will receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it the most. God designed you for rest. You were designed for rest, and there's a capital R rest waiting for you. And so when your soul feels weary and you go, I wish it was January 2027 right now so I could just fast forward through the weary season I'm in, the reality is God has offered you rest and it's on offer now. Did you know that we have a national push-up average? You didn't know that. Now you do. You can Google this sort of thing on that device I just said was a terrible thing in your pocket. You can look that up. There's a thousand others. You look it up. National push-up average in America, it exists, and they subdivide it by gender and age. And so a 30 to 39-year-old male, I'm going to claim that club for one more month until it's no longer applicable. 30 to 39-year-old male, the average in America, push-ups, 13 to 24. It's a kind of a, a window. The average, low average, 13, high average, 24. That's what the average person, my age, us 30-year-olds, us young people, that's what we can do between 13 and 24. Women, 30 to 39, 7 to 12. It changes if you do the knees down. They have that delineation. If you'd like to do knees down push-ups, you're allowed to do those. The numbers go up a little bit. You needed this information. Now you know. You're doing the math in your head. I know you are going like, A, if I'm not in that age range, i got to see mine and see if I can do it. And B, if you are in that age range or anywhere near it, you're like, I bet I could do 25. Come on. I thought I was going to get down and do 25 just to show you that I can do more than the national average. But it seems like that maybe be a, like a prideful thing I don't need to do because A, I'd fail, and then B, um, I would huff and puff the rest of the sermon and it would be distracting for all of us. So I could probably do 75 or 80 if I wanted to right now. Um, what's my point? Human beings in the national push-up contest that we are in can do about 41 seconds of uh, pushing up before we need a rest. Not like six days and then we rest. We can do about 40 seconds worth of push-ups and then we just collapse on the floor and we can't breathe, and we need water, and someone has to revive us, and like two or three hours later, we can do three more push-ups, and then the next day, our arms feel like, like spaghetti. That, that's, our, that's, that's who we are. It's kind of feeble, but it's a helpful point for me because it reminds us that physically, we need rest. We were, you were not designed to go forever. You need sleep. You need rest. You can't do 100 push-ups in a row without a break unless you're incredible, in which case, I'd like to see you do that later, and I'll bet you later. Um, you need emotional rest. You need more than anything. You need spiritual rest. 
You were designed for rest. You were not designed to go all day. And it says here in the scripture that God rested. I think this is wild. God rested. And this is important. He didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't run out of energy to do push-ups. God didn't rest for that. It wasn't because he was weary. Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, pick it up there. It says, for we only, only we who believe can enter into his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has been ready since he made the world, God created the world. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. God rested, God rested, God rested. It's over and over in our scripture Why does this matter? Why did God rest? God rested not because he was tired, not because he was weary. God rested because he was satisfied. The seventh day was not about God being exhausted from creating the earth from nothing. The seventh day was about God sitting back and admiring all he'd made and being satisfied, fully content. Scripture says he looked at what he'd made and said what? It is When's the last time you got at the end of a day and you sat back and admired your day and you went, ooh, it is good. More likely you get to the end of the day and you go, it's finally over. There is a rest that gets your energy back up and there is a whole different kind of rest and that's what God is talking about. There is this creation level rest, this soul satisfaction rest and that is what a weary world needs. So don't miss this. This is, this is, I just don't miss this. This is so profound. This knocked me over when this hit me. We'll start this way. In a season of profound restlessness, what we need is a voice to quiet the murmurings telling us there is more to be done. Start there. In a season of restlessness, in a world of profound restlessness, what we need is actually a voice to quiet down all of the other little murmuring voices that tell us there's more to be done. Explain it this way. The writer says that Jesus knows all your weaknesses. He's been through what you've been through. He's experienced all of your trials, every single one of them except sin. What do we celebrate at Christmas? It's the coming of Jesus, who knows us and wants us to know him truly and relationally. It's not a religion to be earned. And so what keeps us restless? What keeps us striving? We know that Christmas is coming, and we know what it's supposed to remind us, that Jesus came once and for all to take away the sin of the world. We know that. What keeps us striving and restless is this whisper that says, you're not. You could do better. The whisper that says you'll never get there. You don't deserve that. They wouldn't love you if they knew. You can't win that struggle with sin. You can't beat that habit. You're letting everyone down. It all rests on you. That's the whisper of the lie that's being told in every single heart. They're lies. They're lies. Scripture said Jesus, like a sword, slices between what is true and what is a lie. And that happens when we enter into his rest. We begin to see what was real and what was false. We begin to see what the world is convincing us of striving and, and achieving and doing more and climbing the ladder and being good enough and earning it. And then what Jesus said is, I earned it so you would join me in my rest. 
His birth signals the coming of truth. In a world full of lies, his birth signals the coming of truth. His life shows us a savior who gets us. His death shows us a sacrifice of unimaginable love, and his resurrection shows us that not even death can stand in the way of us and our creator. And somewhere in the middle of that, somewhere near the, the, the end of that little run where Jesus came to earth to live and die for us, somewhere in that, the scripture says that he took on a criminal's cross and he hung his head, and as he did so, he said, it is finished. Three other words. In the creation story, we have God sitting back at the end of his six days, and it's the seventh day he sits back, and he has these three words. It is good, and he rests. And then we watch the life of Jesus, and we zoom out, and we start to see these two stories collide, and Jesus at the end of his days hangs his head, and he says, it is finished three other words. Not only is it good, but it is finished. And in his contentment that he had done his job that he came to do, he hangs his head and he dies. It's finished. It's over. And his message to you is it's finished. That we live our lives striving for the next thing, to know the next thing, to learn the next thing, to grab the next piece of information that might make my life whole to achieve one more thing, to climb one more ladder, to prove to my mom that I'm good enough, to prove to my husband or my spouse, to prove to my kids that all the things we're doing, Jesus said, it's finished. It's over. It's over. And when Jesus hangs his head, it's the end of striving because he's done the work. It's the end of restlessness because he's now opened the door to true rest. The end of our need to earn anything. It's the end of sin and death. Jesus' work was a work of second creation. This blew my mind when it hit me. God creates the first time around. Jesus, read book of John in chapter one. The word was with God. The word was God and he created with word. Jesus creates the, the whole of eternity. Jesus creates the cosmos. He creates life itself. And then when life goes sideways, Jesus comes back and makes a second creation through his life. And the first time he creates life, and the second time he creates eternal life, the second time he brings new life, it's a new creation, it's a new life for you and I. Jesus was here to create a second creation, and you and I are invited to live in that. And that's where true satisfaction is, that's where real contentment is. Not in the fallen first, but in the new second. It requires us only to submit to him as Lord, and that sounds like a lot at first. And if you're outside of faith right now and you go, gosh, I'm not sure I want to believe in this thing yet. I'm not totally sold on it yet. It sounds like a big leap to go from Jesus was a great teacher to Jesus is Lord, but it's not a great leap. If Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he did, and the hundreds of eyewitnesses in historical documents will tell you it's real, then there's no other choice but to say, I guess he is Lord. If he did what he said he did and he is who he says he is, he has to be. And so calling him my Lord isn't hard anymore. Recognizing him as king isn't hard anymore. Requiring us to leave the striving isn't a problem anymore because we recognize if he does what he says he does, if he is who he says he is, he's done it. And so I no longer need to work for my salvation. I no longer need to follow a religious checklist. I no longer need to look for enlightenment or transcendence or any of these things because it's in him alone. Jesus is the true and better Sabbath. God rested on the Sabbath day, Jesus hung his head and became the new Sabbath. That is not a problem if you want to take a day off in the week and rest and go fishing and take a walk and whatever. That's a good habit. But the ultimate rest, the ultimate Sabbath is found in Christ. And it is available to you every day, every moment, every season. In a weary world, only Jesus offers true rest. He is the true and better Sabbath on offer to you. 
to today in your weariness before even more of the craziness of the season approaches you. I want to invite you to commit to contentment this year. Take on the season with the Savior and take on the season with His rest. So commit to contentment. Second thing I want to invite you to do is start with satisfaction. Start your day with Jesus and start your day with these three words. It is finished. How would you take on your day if you knew that it was already finished? How would you take on your day if you knew that nothing you did today would make God love you more? That nothing you could accomplish, that no gift you could give, that no work you could do would do anything to change the way God feels about you. It wouldn't change your status in eternity. It wouldn't change your place in heaven. It wouldn't change how much you're loved. If Jesus said it is finished, it is upon us to recognize that that's true and to live it. And so if you're one of those people that writes messages on your mirror and you get all motivational about that, you better be getting that pen out and write, it is finished on your mirror. So every morning when you get up, you go, it's finished. That's how I have to live. If you've got to commute every day and you want to put the sticky note on your dash and say, when I get in the car before I do anything else, I have to remember it is finished. For me, i got the sticky note. I'm putting it on my mirror. Because I don't live this way enough either. I live in this, this scurrying, hurrying rat race that we're all in. I get to the end of the day, I'm exhausted, and I can't remember what I did. And what I need to remember before I ever start is it's finished. That you are loved more than you could ever imagine. That there is a work of creation that was done to make this place real. And there was a second work of creation to invite you into true rest. And if you are willing to take it, then you can start your day by saying, it's finished. And I just get to live in it. I want to make sure you have what you need to do that. I have some resources, one of which is a devotional, a John Piper devotional. It's on Facebook again today. You go to our Facebook page, and there's a link there. You click it. You can download the PDF for free. If you want something to do every day when you wake up, you want to go, okay, how do I do this, though? Start here. It's there for you. Maybe you have another way you want to do it. That's fine. We have these Bibles here in the room. They are free. We have a church member who donates these Bibles. They are nice, and they are free. So maybe you need one. You go, gosh, I haven't had a Bible in a long time, or I don't even know where mine is. Start fresh. Maybe you have a neighbor, a friend. Maybe you want to take it with your invite box and you want to hand this to, it, to the, uh, your neighbor with it. They're free. We got a hundred more behind it. We want you to have every resource you can have that you can access Jesus every single day. So whether today is the first day you follow Jesus or you've been following for a long time, this should be the Christmas season that is marked not by weariness and stress, but by something totally different. God has prepared a rest for you. His name is Jesus. So in that song I like, in Oh Holy Night, there's this verse that gets me. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, yearning, longing, till he appeared, he, Jesus, appeared, and the soul felt its worth. You are loved. A thrill of hope, the weary world that's you rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn this morning and each morning in the season to come my prayer for us as a people for our community is that that thrill of hope could be ours again that waking up to see it is finished might bring a thrill of hope into your day i don't have to do it it's already done. That you might find joy in the weariness and you might do so with simply saying yes to God. That's all it takes.
The writer of Hebrews said it, for those who believe, this is the rest is on offer. You just have to believe. So maybe you're in here and you haven't said yes to God in a long time. You've got God on the back burner because you've got a busy life and a lot to do. And my challenge to you today would be to allow today to be your yes. That when we pray at the close of the service, that you would, in the quiet of your own heart, you would say, God, I need to say yes to you. I need to start with you. I need to rest in you. It starts with yes. God, I, I believe. Maybe you're in the room and you haven't ever made that statement. Maybe you're watching online and somebody sent you a link and you got curious and who knows. And there's that thing in you that goes, it's true and it's real. And the challenge for you today is to make the same statement. It's not that different. There's no other climb that you have to make. It's yes. God, I believe. I want to believe. I want to follow and I want to rest in you. And if we can say that today and start this season anew, then we have a chance to enter into that rest, to re-feel that, that thrill of hope. To live in a world where it is finished is a truly thrilling thing. So let's go there together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word astounds me. The beauty of creation and recreation and new creation stunning. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to rescue. Thank you for sacrifice and salvation. God, thank you for the thrill of hope it does give us when we take the time to stop and remember that it is finished. Father, this morning, each of us in this room, we want to say yes. Each of us online, we have the opportunity, we want to say yes God, we want your rest and we want your hope and we want your safety and salvation. So today, Father, let me be the one, no one else's prayer but mine. I say yes. I will follow you. I believe. God, mark this season in my life. It's a thrilling season where it is finished. Father, my prayer for those in this room who are praying the exact same thing is you would meet them where they are. God, those who are tuned into screens and phones in this crazy world we live in, my prayer is that they pray that in their heart, you would meet them where they are. Every single one of us, God, meet us right where we are. Guide us and show us the beauty of your already finished work, that we might participate in sharing it with others as we go. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray in his lovely and beautiful and saving name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.